Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, December 5th, 2010. And we're going to start tonight with Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 15. And the verse reads, The light of the king is life, and his will is like a rain cloud. The light of the king is life, and his will is like a rain cloud. So as we generally do, before we try to dive in and figure out what does the verse mean, we want to first ask all the questions around the verse. Uh, things that don't make sense, things we would need to define, uh, and so forth. Jim, thank you. What is the light of the king? Uh, great question right off the bat. What is King Solomon referring to here? And then we could go on and ask, well, why is that considered life? And then in the second half, it says his will. Well, what's that? And how is it like a rain cloud? I mean, rain can be, depending on, I suppose, uh, you know, what kind of a day you're having or what you're hoping for, a really good thing or not a good thing. And then I might ask, in addition to that, what is the comparison, if there is one, between the two halves? Often the verses are trying to give us a comparison between one thing and another, good and evil, the righteous uh, uh, and uh, a fool, or something like that. This doesn't necessarily seem like it has a contrast. And Jim, your translation says a late rain. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that might suggest something about an early rain versus a late rain and what that has to do with crops. I'm going to go for this purpose with Rabbi Moskowitz's translation with, uh, with just rain cloud. Uh, and the interpretation uh, will, I think, um, uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Rabbi Moskowitz suggested uh, that the light of the king means a bright face. And yes, Jim, you should be seeing the verse in a PowerPoint on the whiteboard. Uh, so I've got that loaded, and at least I'm seeing it, so I trust everyone else is. Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that, that the light of the king means a bright face. So that that would suggest that the king is happy. He's pleased. He's content. He's in a positive state, emotionally or otherwise. So if that's the case, then why would that be considered life? Well, if you're standing in front of the king and you have an idea or a question or a proposal, you want the king to be in a good mood. I mean, you want him to be pleased because you're likely to get a judgment from him or a decision that's more favorable to you. And contrast that with the verse we discussed last week where the king is angry. 
which is not a state that we would like a king to be in if we have to stand in front of them. So the first half of the verse seems to be telling us that when the king's face is bright, that means life. That's a good thing. Now, there are a couple ways that we could interpret this. One way is very personal. I could literally be standing in front of the king, and however the king responds to me is going to have a big impact on my life. Remember, in a king-type situation, the king has complete power, uh, including of life and death. Uh, so you want things to go well with the king. Uh, and you want him to respond to you in a positive way. So that's the personal approach that we could take of interpreting this. But it also could be referring to the fact that the light of the king's face uh, and the fact that that is life could be referring to the entire community. When the king has a bright face, that's good for the community, for the society, for the the uh, citizenry that he is ruling over. He's then operating, presumably, benevolently. So he is making, or he's going to be making, some kind of a decision that is good for the community. So the life that King Solomon is referring to in the first half of the verse could be the general life of the community. Happy king means a good life for everybody. Um, and, that, you know, that could be true with regard to a lot of other situations as well. Uh, a lot of kids figure out, you know, if mom and dad are happy, things are going to go well. If they're not, it's probably not going to be much fun. Uh, if, you know, you're working for somebody else and they're in a really bad mood, it's probably not going to be much fun around the office. On the other hand, if they're happy, they're in a good frame of mind, that's probably going to be good for everybody. Now, we could ask the question, so why is King Solomon telling us this? I mean, it's kind of obvious. Okay, king's in a good mood. That's positive for whoever he happens to, to be talking to at the time. How does that piece of information affect me practically? Remember, Proverbs is a book about practical living and how we make decisions in everyday life. So let's hold that question and let's look at the second half. It says that his will is like a rain cloud. Now, one question that we could ask is, well, whose will are we talking about here? Is this talking about the king's will or somebody else's? And if it isn't about the king's will, then whose will is it talking about? The commentators take a number of views on this verse, but I'm going to take a somewhat varied approach. And first, I'm intrigued by the idea that King Solomon used the words rain cloud rather than rain. If it was referring to the rain that waters the crops, so um, then the meaning is that when the king's face is bright, then his will, or his, his power, is like the coming forth of rain on the crops. But Solomon referred to rain clouds. And why? 
What's the difference between a rain cloud and rain? Rain, that's rain. Okay, we know that. But a rain cloud is only the potential for rain. And it doesn't say what type of rain. And further, it just says that the will of the king, and note that I'm assuming that his will means the will of the king, not somebody else's, is like a rain cloud. It doesn't say whether the will of the king is good or bad, or perhaps better said, it doesn't say whether it has to do with positive or negative consequences. Now, I will submit to you that a rain cloud could be positive or negative depending on the circumstances. If the crops need rain and the rain cloud produces that rain, that's positive. That would be a good thing. But if the crops need rain and the rain cloud passes by and no rain comes forth, then that's a negative thing. Or maybe the rain cloud comes by and dumps a flood of rain on the community, a monsoon type thing, and the crops are all washed away in cases where there's massive flooding. So it seems like the rain cloud is only the potential for rain and that the outcome could be positive or it could be negative. Okay, so how does that help us? What it suggests is that the outcome of the will of the king depends on how he uses that will. If he has a bright face, a lit up face, that is, he's happy and benevolent, then that leads to life, both for individuals and in the community. And the king will use his will to bring about positive consequences. In the case of the metaphor, that means rain at a good time. But if the king doesn't have a bright face, then his face is not life. That is, it's not going to portend good things for the individuals before him or before his kingdom. And in that case, his will may still be like a rain cloud, but it may be wielded in a way that is not positive for the king's subjects, or even for the king, or for the kingdom. So the verse seems to be telling us information about how a king operates, and the important effects of doing actions within the bounds of honesty and reasonableness that, the, that produce a bright face for the king, so that he will act benevolently toward his subjects. And I'll further suggest, as we did in our last class, that this verse goes beyond kings in the literal sense. And it can be applied in many situations, uh, business situations, personal situations, where we are uh, subordinate to someone else in a powerful situation, who's in a powerful position, and someone who uh, has influence over us or a community of people, and how important it is for us to present our case or deal with them in a way, again, within the bounds of honesty and reasonableness, that produce uh, a bright face on the person. 
there is a way to tell someone something that they need to be told in a way that produces uh, a positive outcome and there's a way to tell them something that produces a negative outcome. Uh, so you want to be aware of who you're speaking with and what the situation is and to the degree that you can their psychology so that you can adjust uh, your message in a way that they will hear and understand and that will produce the best possible outcome. Okay, any questions on that? Very interesting continuation of what we talked about last week, and there are a number of verses here in this particular section that deal with kings, how kings operate, and how it's best for uh, us to deal with them. Okay, uh, in that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 16. And it reads, Acquiring wisdom is better than fine gold, and acquiring understanding is better than silver. Acquiring wisdom is better than fine gold, and acquiring wisdom is better than silver. What kind of questions do we have there? Okay, Jim, thank you. What's the difference here between gold and silver? I mean, obviously, they're two different metals, but why is King Solomon using this particular comparison here? And one with one thing and one with another. I'd also ask in the first part of the verse, what is wisdom? You know, we use that term all the time, but it's good to make sure that we have a very precise definition in mind. Linda, you've asked, what do these metals have to do with wisdom and understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, what's, what's the comparison here? And Terry, good. What's the difference between acquiring wisdom and acquiring understanding? I mean, it almost seems like King Solomon's saying the same thing twice. <clears throat> And, and is there a reason he's referring one with regard to gold, one with regard to silver, or is he just trying to say, hey, they're both valuable? The Malbum suggests that wisdom has to do with moral matters and is stored up by a person like gold in a treasure house. It's valued as a precious substance in itself. In his interpretation, understanding is the deductive capacity that leads a person to his own rational conclusions about truth and falsehood and is used, it's what you use actively in the marketplace, so to speak. You use it to exchange and acquire goods, you use it in the world to acquire new and more valuable insights. So that's, that's his approach. And when we look at these verses, we need to look, uh, it's important to look at and give great respect to the commentaries uh, of the, the Torah commentators because they're men of great understanding. Uh, the Art Scroll edition of Proverbs uh, expands on a number of their ideas and suggests several ways of interpreting this verse. I'd like to suggest a slightly different approach. And to do that, I want to start back at the beginning with what's wisdom? So let me pause and ask that question of you. We use that word a lot, but 
What is that? What is wisdom? We all want to acquire it. We all think it's important. But in fact, what is it? How do we distinguish it from something else? Okay, Louis, thank you. So you're suggesting wisdom is understanding. Okay, could be then that King Solomon's uh, using two different terms for the same thing uh, and is just trying to do that for emphasis. I'd like to go back to a class we did at the very, very beginning of this Proverbs study. Uh, and I think it was the very first verse. And this is a definition that I got years ago from Rabbi Moskowitz, and it stuck in my mind and has uh, seemed to have worked very well within the context of Proverbs. And that is that wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. The ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. It's your ability to look ahead and see what will happen if you take a certain action and not only the ability to see it, but the intestinal fortitude to act on that. Uh, and a person who does that, we consider to be a wise person. So a person who looks down the road and says, you know, if I study for that, that test uh, that's coming up in two months, if I set aside 15 minutes every day and I study for that diligently, I will be able to pass um, and I'll learn the material along the way. Or a, uh, an 18-year-old who has their driver's license and pulls up to a stop sign and one of his buddies pulls up next to him, revs his engine, obviously daring him to you know, do a rabbit start from the stoplight as soon as it turns green to see whose car is faster. The wise 18-year-old will look ahead and say, hmm, the consequences of doing that are, A, I could get a ticket, B, I could hit somebody, which would really be bad, C, it's hard on my car, D, it's hard on the tires. Uh, all those things have real negative consequences for me, and the only positive consequence is an ego pleasure. So I'll look at it, those consequences and decide, no, I won't play the game with him. We would deem that teenager to be a wise person. So, <coughs> excuse me. Again, I'll suggest wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. So in that case, what's understanding? And I'm going to suggest that it's exactly what we think it is. It's when you have the ability to understand a situation and see what's going on. It's your ability to grasp reality in a particular situation. Now, wisdom would seem to require understanding because in order to know how to act in a situation, you have to understand and see the reality of the situation itself. The 18-year-old has to see uh, what could really happen in this situation if I race down this residential street. But I'll suggest that the reverse is not true. Wisdom involves both the understanding and the ability to act on it. 
Understanding is just understanding. There's no action involved in that. It's just realization. It's just seeing the reality of the situation. Now, what led me down this path in interpreting this verse is the comparison that Solomon made between gold in the first half and silver in the second half. Because generally speaking, gold is always thought of as a more valuable metal than silver. Silver is always like the number two metal, and gold is the number one. Considered to be the most valuable, uh, has the most value if you go out on the metals markets. Um, when, uh, you know, people talk about uh, getting a, say, a, a really valuable ring, they generally don't talk about a silver ring, they talk about a gold ring. Uh, and, you know, gee, this is, this is 24 karat gold. They don't generally talk quite the same way about silver, although sterling silver is considered to be a very uh, valuable metal, and, and uh, particularly with regard to, to flatware and that sort of thing. So I started with the presumption that the verse must be telling me that acquiring wisdom and acquiring understanding are both important, but that somehow acquiring wisdom is better than acquiring understanding or is more valuable. And it seems to me that the difference is that understanding doesn't necessarily include the action step. With wisdom, I both understand a situation and I act on it. With only understanding, I may not act on the understanding. And so it's not quite as valuable as wisdom, but still very, very valuable. Because my ability to understand a situation brings me closer to living in line with reality, and that's better even than fine silver. So in short, Understanding is good. Understanding combined with action based on that understanding is even better. Now, I need to caveat this and tell you as best as I could see, none of the commentaries explain the verse this way. Uh, so this is a Doug Taylor interpretation of the verse, uh, not based on uh, what the sages do, but it makes sense to me and helps to explain why King Solomon picked gold in the first half and silver in the second. Okay, any questions on that? In that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 17. And this verse reads, The smooth path of the righteous is to turn from evil, and he who guards his soul guards his path. Really interesting use of words. The smooth path of the righteous is to turn from evil, and he who guards his soul guards his path. So, in terms of questions there, what do you think? Okay, Jim Good, thank you. How does one guard his soul? Great question. And how does one, how does, 
guarding a soul guard a path? Yeah, Terry, good. What, what, what is this path thing? You know, what's, what is King Solomon meaning? Okay, and did someone want to say something on the mic? Feel free to do so. Okay. Um, I would also ask, and Terry, this may be what you're referring to, what's the smooth path part in the first half of the verse? What does it mean, the smooth path of the righteous? Usually we talk about the path of the righteous. Why did King Solomon, yeah, Jim, why did he say smooth? Okay. Okay, and I guess another question that I would ask is, isn't the first half pretty obvious? I mean, it says the smooth path of the righteous is to turn from evil. Well, of course the righteous turn from evil. I mean, that's practically the definition of a righteous person. So what is King Solomon telling me in the first half that I don't already know? And one more question that caught my eye was in the second half, it says, he who guards his soul guards his path. My first reaction was, well, shouldn't it be the reverse? Wouldn't it be if you guard your path, you guard your soul? In other words, thinking of, okay, if I take care of my actions, that somehow takes care of my, my soul. So in the first half of the verse, the word righteous uh, in the Hebrew is the word yosher. And according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, this is referring to someone whose natural tendency is to act correctly. A person who has a natural tendency toward honesty and who desires honesty and appreciates desirable character traits. There are people like that. They just have a natural inclination uh, that way. Now, you might think that a person like that has it made. You know, gee, if they're already going down that path, what's the problem? But the Rabbeinu Yonah is saying that the first half of the verse is indicating that a person like this must first strive to rid himself of any traits that might lead to evil or cause evil. So the smooth path as I understand it, is referring to the person who naturally goes down the road of the righteous. And the Rabbeinu Yonah is saying they still have to make sure they get rid of any traits that might lead to evil or cause evil. You don't just, you know, sort of get it automatically. It's sort of like, you know, nobody's born good at golf. You know, anybody that's good has to practice. And so he, he seems to be saying that uh, even a person whose natural tendency is to operate that way needs to uh, dig in and make sure that he doesn't have any traits that uh, could cause him to, uh, to do evil. According to Rabbi Moskowitz, one of the qualities of a yosher, uh, the person who is described in the first half of the verse, is that they are a lover of truth. And so that means that they're going to naturally enjoy science and they're naturally going to be drawn to the knowledge of God. So they want to know this stuff. And even though the Yosher sees the value of reaching toward God, you know, studying Torah, studying Psalms, whatever, 
he also realizes that he can't really completely uh, have it until he has the fear of God. And that, as we've talked about in previous sessions, the fear of God means the fear of consequences. Okay? It's not the idea that, you know, uh, somebody's going to turn around and, and is watching over my shoulder, is going to whack me if I do something wrong. It's the fear of natural consequences, of recognizing, you know, if I do this evil act, I am going to get consequences because of that, you know, based on my study of Proverbs and, and uh, so forth. There are things that will happen to me. Uh, so he needs to have, he wants to and works on having that fear of consequences constantly in his mind. Not a fear like afraid, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not frightened in the sense that it immobilizes me, but the sense of I'm constantly analyzing my life and analyzing my actions to make sure that I'm operating down uh, the road of positive consequences. And so I'm turning away from anything that is going to lead me down a negative road. Now, according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, the second half of the verse is referring to someone who doesn't have that natural tendency like the Yosher does. And that that person can still protect his soul by working on his character and adopting the fear of consequences. And by doing that, he guards his path in life. So he is, you know, he may not have the, the natural inclination, but he can still do the stuff that we're encouraged to do as, uh, as Noahides, be involved in character study, you know, be studying consequences, be involved in the world of thought and ideas, and by doing that, he can guard his path in life. Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that the second half means that this kind of thinking becomes second nature. Uh, and that the only way you can really be successful in life uh, is to think this way in everything, to be constantly involved in thinking about consequences, the world of rational ideas, and analyzing situations in a rational way to make the best possible uh, long-term decisions for your life in everything that you do. It just becomes a natural part of the way that you do business, that way you do tour study, the way you approach food, the way, you know, everything that you do is an analysis of what are the consequences of the various alternatives in front of me and what's the best way uh, that I can operate. Okay, any questions on that? In that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. This is an interesting verse uh, because I think it is quoted a lot uh, in, uh, as pride cometh before a fall. Uh, but the way that uh, it was translated to me by Rabbi Moskowitz is uh, if I have my notes proper on it, is prior to being broken is pride, and before failure is arrogance. 
Prior to being broken is pride, and before failure is arrogance. So, what about questions here? What about questions on this verse? Prior to being broken is pride, and before failure is arrogance. Okay, Jim, you've said, can one not fail without those traits? Very interesting question. Does it always happen that before failure is arrogance? Or, as you were suggesting, is true failure only with those? Good question. Good question. And I guess the other thing that I would ask is, well, it says that before failure is arrogance, what's the difference between this idea and the one presented right before it? In other words, and Jim, you've asked what kind of brokenness. Yeah, what are, is King Solomon really telling us two different things here? Or is he just saying the same thing twice? Because they sound very similar. So let's start with the presumption that there is a distinction. The verse seems to be making a distinction between being broken and failure. Uh, and the Art Scroll edition translates being broken as destruction, which seems uh, synonymous with the idea of being broken. Now, I'll suggest that a failure is different than being broken. Okay, and Jim, you've asked what kind of failure? Yeah. The verse doesn't necessarily tell us, but people have failures all the time. I mean, we fail at this, we fail at that, and just because I have a failure doesn't mean that I can't keep going. But being broken implies something more deep. I mean, when you're broken, you can't go on, you can't continue, you're destroyed. You don't just like get back up and dust yourself off again. Uh, that tends to be what happens when we fail. Okay, I fell off the bike, so I'll get back on. But falling off the bike is different than being broken or destruction. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that a healthy human being is secure in what he thinks is right and whatever he thinks is right, okay? And we've talked about this before, you know, we, we tend to operate on the basis of what we know, uh, and we don't really have anything else to operate on. I mean, that's what we do in life. But if the person can't change his view, that's arrogance. In other words, we all have a view, and we think that we're right on, on a particular issue, but hopefully, as Sajigan says, we we leave ourselves open so that if someone can show us that we're incorrect, we're willing to change our position. So like I have this position on this issue, but if somebody can show me that I'm, I'm wrong, okay, I'll listen to that. I'll listen to their argument. And if their argument makes sense to me or explains the situation better or shows me that my position is incorrect, then I'm willing to change. But if I'm unwilling to change, that's arrogance. The arrogance, that arrogance, causes you to break. 
because you can't see the causes of your actions. Okay. And so, Jim, I think that is what uh, it's getting to. That that kind of arrogance will cause you to break uh, and, and leads to failure. Now, in an expansion on that, Alshich and the Vilna Gion indicate that pride is public while arrogance is internal. So if you have an internal arrogance, that is, you aren't willing to change your view, even in the face of evidence that shows you're incorrect, then you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have failures. It's kind of like tripping, you know. Uh, if, if you're unwilling to have somebody tell you that there are potholes in front of you, then you're likely to step in them. But if your arrogance is public, then external forces start to come into play, and there you'll face destruction. So the verse seems to be teaching us the consequences of public and private arrogance, that unwillingness to change my view even when I'm shown that my view is incorrect. And I will suggest that there's a certain ego involvement there. You know, I like my position. I'm not willing to admit that so-and-so uh, is right. Uh, I'm more emotionally attached to my own idea than I am to the truth. Because if I was totally emotionally attached to the truth, and somebody came along and showed me, a, you know, hey, look, your conclusion is wrong, and here's why, and I saw it, I would say, oh, okay, I'll change my position. But if I've got an emotional attachment to my position, then I'm unwilling to look at their, their reasoning regardless because I want to hold on to my thing. And that causes both internal and external downfalls. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions? Okay, let's move on to verse 19 of chapter 16. And that verse reads, It's better to be broken in spirit with the humble than share spoils with the proud. It's better to be broken in spirit with the humble than share spoils with the proud. So what do you think? What kind of questions can we ask about that? Ah, Lori and Terry, good evening. Good question. What's broken in spirit? What does that mean? And along with that, why broken in spirit with the humble? You know, why not just broken in spirit? And then we could also ask, on the second half, what does share spoils mean? And Laurie and Terry, yeah, you're asking, is are they the same? Is broken in spirit the same as humble? And if it's the same as humble, then why did King Solomon put that there? And Terry, good question. This broken, is that destruction 
or is broken in spirit here means something different than the way broken was used uh, in the last verse? Good question. And I would also ask, why? Why is this verse true? Why is it better to be broken in spirit with the humble than share spoils with the proud? What's the mechanism operating here that makes that true? I mean, Solomon's making a statement. So why is that so? Now, some of the translations translate broken in spirit as lowly in spirit. And for our purposes, I'm going to assume that they mean the same thing. So, low in spirit or broken in spirit. Now, based on the commentators, I want to suggest that true humility is a healthy sense of self-worth, but which doesn't demand respect from others. It's someone who recognizes their true place in the universe, okay? They recognize that they have certain talents, they have certain skills, they have certain attributes, and at the same time, they also recognize that they are nothing in the context of the universe. Moses is described as the humblest man who ever lived. Now, his humility was not that he didn't recognize his own wisdom. It, was, it wasn't the, oh, shucks, you know, I, I don't really know how to do anything. It wasn't that, okay? My understanding is he saw and recognized his own wisdom, but he saw that wisdom in the bigger context of God and God's wisdom, and he recognized that in the context of God's wisdom, his wisdom was nothing. He was nothing. Now, the Rambam tells us that if a person finds an imbalance in his character, he should temporarily move to the opposite side for a while in order to eventually get to a balanced point. However, he makes an exception, which is to stay as far away from conceit as we can. Okay, so let's keep that point in mind. Now, from a definitional standpoint, I want to suggest that share spoils means to partake of ill-gotten gains. In other words, you're, you're, you're partaking of wealth, certain materiality, that was not obtained properly. So, the verse seems to be telling us that it's better to hang around with the humble than it is to partake of the wealth of a person who is proud. Okay? Now, that sounds great, but from a practical standpoint, we want to know why. Why is that the case? Why is it better to hang around with the humble than to share wealth with the proud. And I want to suggest 
that it's because we tend to be influenced by and we tend to become like the people that we hang around. The humble person sees himself realistically. Okay, He has a good self-image. He doesn't demand respect from other people. He doesn't expect respect from other people. He just knows what his place in the universe is. And by hanging around those kind of people, a person can start to pick up that character trait and learn from that, those kinds of people so that you make your own character that way. In a similar vein, when you hang around with the proud, even though they may have more wealth or more material goods, that also can have a similar effect. A person can learn from them to be proud. And we saw the consequences of that in the last verse. So it seems that this verse is doing two things for us. First, it's emphasizing the importance of humility, of operating with a realistic understanding of ourselves and of our place in the universe. And second, it's emphasizing how important it is for us to hang around people with this particular important character trait so that we learn from them and we develop that trait ourselves. I recently undertook a private lesson in a technique called the Alexander Technique. It's a movement methodology. It was developed in the acting world, but it has huge benefits for people in all walks of life. And I started working on it to help out with some chronic neck and shoulder tension uh, that I have that comes about probably from spending a lot of time working in front of computers because that's a lot of what I do in my everyday work life. The instructor, interestingly, commented on something called subconscious imitation, which is about how we learn from watching those around us. And in that particular lesson, the instructor made a particular movement. And I started automatically doing it as well. And she then said to me, see, you're doing this automatically. You're watching me do this, and you automatically do it virtually without thinking. So without particularly consciously thinking about it, I was imitating her movement. I will suggest that a similar phenomenon can happen with regard to behaviors and character traits based on the people we hang around. We start imitating them, and we start picking up their behaviors without even realizing it. That's why it's a wonderful experience to hang around Torah scholars, even in very mundane matters, because we get to observe both consciously and unconsciously how they relate to the world, how they relate to matters around them. Even in, in something as, you know, as simple maybe as getting a glass of water or brushing your teeth, because that can impact our behavior in a very positive way. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, uh, in that case, let's see if we can slip one more verse in here. And let's do Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 20, which reads, One who understands 
and thinks about a matter intelligently will find good, and he who trusts in God is praiseworthy. One who understands and thinks about a matter intelligently will find good, and he who trusts in God is praiseworthy. What about questions around that? Yes, Jim, thank you. How do these relate? I mean, what is this? One seems to be talking about a very practical action. The other seems to be talking about something that, you know, uh, almost we, we would describe as, I guess, religious or in the faith realm. I mean, trusting in God, how does that relate to understanding and thinking about uh, a matter intelligently? Linda, good. How do we define intelligence? What does that mean? When you think about something intelligently. Um, now, Laurie and Terry, you're suggesting the first part talks of the second. Maybe, but let's, let's get the questions down before we, we uh, move on to, uh, to possible solutions. Um, Terry, you said both seem to be intellectual. Okay, very interesting observation. Um, I might ask the question, and, and it seems really obvious, but why is someone who trusts in God praiseworthy? Um, and what does it mean to trust in God? What, what does that mean? Uh, and, and if we say praiseworthy, praiseworthy by whom? Is it God praising us or is it somebody else? Okay. And again, Laurie and Terry, how, as you've suggested, uh, what's the relationship, uh, or Jim, you suggested, what's the relationship between the first half and the second? And Laurie and Terry, you've suggested the first half is talking about the second. So let's see if we can, we can find some order out of this. Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that there's a certain order in doing things. First, you think it through, and then, to the best of your ability, you do it. Okay? And at the same time, you recognize that the results are not in your hands. For the results, you have to trust in God. So our responsibility is to understand a matter and think about it intelligently, with, with wisdom, with insight. Okay? And that is all we can do. If we do that, we will find good. And I'll suggest that the find good part is that we will realize we've done everything in our power and thus we'll find the good that comes from knowing that, that comes from knowing we've done everything we can. Now, let me pause. Laurie and Terry, you've suggested if a person thinks intelligently, he is trusting in Hashem. Uh... But there are a lot of people out there, I'm going to suggest, who do think intelligently and don't even bring Hashem into the picture. So I want to suggest that there's an extra step and that the verse is telling us what that extra step is. So, for example, if a person is trying to get a job, okay, and he does all the research about the company, makes the best application he can, 
puts together a good resume, prepares well for the interview, answers all of the interview questions to the best of his ability, then he can relax in knowing that the matter is now out of his hands, okay? And that there is nothing more he can do. And there is a certain level of peace that can come with that if, if a person recognizes that God is responsible for the results. Okay, Lori and Terry, to your point, he trusts in Hashem. The results are up to God. All we can do are all the actions that are within our power to do. And if we trust in God, after having done all that, then we are considered praiseworthy. In other words, the person who does this is a person we would praise in life. Why? Because they have clearly understood and acted on the difference between their responsibility and God's responsibility. They've taken care of their part, and they have simultaneously recognized God's part which is the results aspect. We do actions. God produces results. So, Laurie and Terry, do you see the, the distinction that I'm making there? That the first half is telling us what we have to do, and the second half is telling us the realization that we need to have that the results are in God's hands. Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that Rashi adds that you need to operate according to rationale, uh, in, order, in other words, a, a rational approach to life. But suppose your life's in danger in order to do a mitzvah. Uh, and he suggested or indicated that once you have to do something, okay, and you know you have to do it, then you should put your trust in God, even if it doesn't seem like it's a rational thing to do. Uh, so if because of halacha, for example, you were forced to put yourself in a dangerous situation, then you do what you need to do and you trust God for the results. Rashi says that if the right thing to do is to put your life in danger, then you do the right thing and then you rely on Hashem. Okay, Rabbi Moskowitz once pointed out to me that there is really only one question that matters with regard to a particular situation, and that is, did I do the right thing? Okay. And so in other words, it's, it's all about my actions. That's what I have control over. And Rashi's saying here that if the right thing is to put your life in danger, then you do that. And then we trust in God with regard to the outcome. Because all that's within our control is to do the right thing. All the other factors outside of our control, that's up to Hashem. Okay. Any questions on that idea? In that case, we'll stop for the evening. Thanks for joining, and have a great week.